Well, lesson 20 already finds us in the beginning of chapter 4. And the start of chapter 4 is actually a continuation of the final thoughts of chapter 3. So let's start with reading a little bit of chapter 3. And Paul is telling us that we're heirs to the promises given to Abraham. You see, we're still dealing with the main issue of the book, and that's identity. Who are, who the non-Jews are, now that they've left paganism and have accepted Yeshua as Messiah. Identity is something that we all struggle with. So this is nothing new. Non-Jews struggle with identity within our Messianic movement today. And Paul is explaining to the Galatians the same thing I tell non-Jews when they come into this congregation, into the movement. And that is there's nothing more important than being complete in Messiah. There is no second class citizens in this congregation and there's no second class citizens in Messiah. Paul says there's nothing left for the non-Jew to do. He's like the Jewish people. He is an heir to the promises given to Abraham. The promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through and because of the seed of Abraham. So let's begin with uh, chapter 3 and verse 23 and just review this a little bit. It says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Messiah that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For all of you who were baptized into Messiah have clothed yourself with Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, maybe you're wondering why I backed up to verse 23, and the reason is simple. The first seven verses of chapter 4 are an example of what he just stated in these last verses of chapter 3. And when we lay them side by side, as we're going to do in a moment, we're going to be able to easily see that. And for us, it's good news. Because we should be able to get through 11 verses today instead of just three. We know that it's an example because of the way chapter 4 begins. It begins with, what I'm saying to you is that. In other words, he's, I always say in other words, but he's saying, what I'm saying to you is that. So we will know that he's going to explain further what it means to be an heir. So let's begin by reading the reading for today. Chapter 4, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no longer different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That we might receive full rights as sons because you are sons. God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. So we have two phrases that are kind of difficult to understand when taken out of the context of chapter 3. And it leaves people to wonder what is their meaning. And the first Difficulty comes from the phrase, basic principles of the world. 
And some of the more common interpretations you hear are the basic elements of the universe, namely earth, water, air, and fire, which were also given names and worshipped as gods. We also hear that it means heavenly bodies, like the stars and the, uh, and the moon and the sun, also understood as divine powers. But our closest understanding would more likely come from looking at the same use of the Greek word for basic principles in the book of Hebrews. The Greek word is stoikoion, and it means, I put it up here for you, it means element, principle, or rudiment. There's no real help there, no surprises in the definition, but when we look at what, how it's used in Hebrews, we see something different. It reads this way in, t- in verse 12 of chapter 5. For owing to be teachers because of the time, again, ye have need that one teach you what are the elements of the beginning of the oracles of God. And you have become having need of milk and not strong food. So here, what we see is it means elementary form of understanding God's word. So elementary that he, he calls it the milk of God's word. So with all that we've learned thus far, now think about this, these three definitions, and all that we've learned thus far from the letter to the Galatians, and all that we know about their former idol and emperor worship of the Galatians, which of these understandings do you think would be most correct? Well, if you said all three, I would agree with you. And I'm not of the opinion, see, I'm not of the opinion that Paul really drew distinctions between errors. Error was error to Paul. He viewed the enslavement of being under the false direction of the works of the law in the same way he viewed the enslavement of the non-Jewish Galatians' belief in idols. And why do I say that? Because they had the same result. For Paul, they both led you away from the Messiah Yeshua. And that's the goal. For Paul, it was all about being in Messiah. If you look into the Torah with just your carnal mind and you walk it out in the flesh, never seeing or finding Messiah, you're in the same boat, so to speak, as the pagan who's never looked into the Torah. You both, neither one of you, find Messiah. And to Paul, what is paramount is that you are in Messiah. And if we look at what Paul has said in chapter 3 and put it beside What he says in chapter 4, you can see what I'm saying is true. Listen to what it says in chapter 3. It says, We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Messiah. And then in verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman. You see... It's saying the same thing. And if we combine this with what we read in Hebrews, we have Paul saying that those under the law were enslaved to the basic understanding of the law. Or we could say the works of the law that had been introduced by men. He's calling this understanding of the influences exactly what it is. It's nothing more than rules taught by men. It doesn't get any more elementary than that either. For Paul, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But he makes a clear distinction between the law, the book of the Torah, and the works of the law. Those rulings of men can be just as basic a principle of the world as idol worship because they are taught by men and both keep you from the Messiah Yeshua. 
And what did he say at the end of chapter 3? Well, let me remind you one more time. We'll read from verse 25. It says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For all of you who were baptized into Messiah have clothed yourself with Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. Those with the law were enslaved by the basic principles of worldly men and those outside the law were enslaved by other basic principles of the world. Everyone, Jew and non-Jew, needed Messiah Yeshua. Within Messiah, there is no Jew, no Greek. Because we're all heirs. We're all one in Messiah. In other words, if you are a non-Jew, your identity in Messiah is the same as those who are Jewish. Born Jewish, there's no difference. Because in Messiah, we are all the same. We are all one. So we could say, hey, we were all in the same boat before Messiah. And we're all in the same boat after Messiah. Amen? So if what I'm saying is correct, in works of the law, and uh, those under the works of the law were enslaved to the basic principles of the world, is no different than Paul saying we were held prisoners by the law, locked up, then we should be able to find such slavery written about somewhere in God's word. Slavery to the works of the law. And if we look in chapter 23 of Matthew, verses 3 and 4, we find exactly that. He says this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads, put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You see, they had placed the people in slavery, under a heavy bondage. The works of the law is the law understood through our basic worldly understanding. And what does it produce? It produces slavery. Paul's point is that now that Messiah has come, he's released us from the basic understanding. And now, because of faith in Messiah, the spirit of the living God has taken up residence in our heart and we are now able to walk out the commands of the book of the Torah, not by those basic principles that enslaved men, but by the spirit of the living God. And what that means is that love your neighbor as yourself becomes more than a list of rules that keeps you from moving boundary markers or making restitution for some offense. Now it becomes a concern for your neighbor that's equal to the concern you have for yourself. It means that you realize that we are all one in Messiah and we seek each other's good at our own expense. And it's why Yeshua says this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in the words of the master, the works of the law not only made a slave of the people, But that slavery to the basic principles of the law was not enough to secure you life with God that we all desire. 
It fell short of the glory of God, short of life in the kingdom. And so if we look closely at chapter four, verses one through seven, we find that they parallel chapter three, verses 23 through 29. And so since this is really a parallel to what we covered last week, I think we can move on to verses eight through 11 because we covered it pretty good last week, right? And remember what I said now. I said that the basic principles in this case meant slavery to the law. But it could also mean slavery to idol worship. And Paul really saw very little difference. And so now Paul changes his arguments against the influencers and the works of the law to the Galatians past. Which was, of course, idol worship. Okay, And if we don't catch the change in thought, we're certainly going to misunderstand the passage, which many have done in the past. The change is subtle because, as I said earlier, Paul sees little difference in the principles of men, be they in regard to the Torah or be they in regard to idol worship. And so he says, referring to their past, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? See, when he says, before you knew God, he can only mean in the past, when you were worshipers of the emperor and the gods of the pantheon. Because remember, they're under Roman rule. At that time, they were enslaved by gods which were not gods at all. So very little commentary is needed here. I think I think we can all understand that, right? There are no other gods except one God. In the past, like the rest of the world, they had no relationship with the one true God. They made gods out of the elements of the universe and created things. Which certainly makes one wonder, why would this be inserted in a letter where he's addressing identity and conversion? Well, if we look at history and think back to our study of Romans, we kind of covered this in the book of Romans. I think we can piece this together. You see, what many people don't realize or don't understand is that Rome was actually invited into Israel by Israel's leaders. They had an internal dispute and they invited the Romans in to settle it. And after that, they just took control of Israel without a sword being drawn against the Jewish people. As such, Israel and the Jewish people had a special relationship with Rome. They were allowed to practice their own religion, which was something that was not allowed in the other nations that they conquered. Rome and those they conquered had to worship the emperor and the gods of the pantheon, or they were considered heretics and they were dealt with by execution. Any other worship was considered atheism. It wasn't tolerated. The Jewish faith was the sole exception and they were allowed to worship God and collect money for the temple of God and so forth. And this, as I said, was something that was not permitted to the other peoples like the Galatians. Now think about it. So for the Galatians, without a complete conversion and acceptance by the Jewish people, then the Galatians may have been seen as what? Heretics. That means if the Jewish community would reject these believing Galatians who refused to convert, then they would be at the mercy of the Roman government who had no mercy. They would not be considered under Jewish protection and looked at as heretics if they did not participate in the worship of Rome. 
For that reason, they might consider a return to the basic principles from which they came for survival. Right? Paul sees this option as no different than they're submitting to the influences. And so we, we have this section of the letter telling them not to return to those principles either. Remember, they, they were things expressly forbidden by God in the Torah. And it will be later confirmed by the council in Jerusalem, which later said of the non-Jews, they had to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from sexual immoralities, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And so Paul says next, you are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Another tough one, because this is commonly thought of as being, he's referring to the Sabbath and the festivals of the Lord for days, the new moon festival for months, and the sabbatical years for years. However, this would be certainly an abrupt change in thought. Even James Dunn, whose commentary I've come to respect, misses the mark here, and this is what he writes. By days, Paul would no doubt mean particularly the Sabbath, but also special days like the Day of Atonement. The Sabbath was another of the Jewish laws which was seen to mark out Israel as, a dis- as distinctive and to function as a boundary between Jews and Gentiles. Well, I want you to think about it here because Paul's words here, to, if you take Paul's words to mean the Sabbath of God and the festivals of God, you're really taking a leap in logic here. After speaking of them returning to the worship of idols and observing, and then to observing festivals of the Sabbath of the Lord with no qualifying marks in return, in, in between would be not tenable at all. And so Nanos in the book, in his book, Irony of Galatians says this. Troy Martin has argued against the consensus that would, the addressees are turning back to Not to Jewish practices, but to pagan ones. I find his case convincing, and it is useful for evaluating the matter at hand. Stephen Mitchell makes an observation that sharpens the point. The force which would have drawn new adherents back to conformity with the prevailing paganism was public worship of the emperor. The packed calendar of the ruler called Dragoon, the citizens of Antioch into observing days, months, seasons, and years which... It laid down for special recognition and for celebration. And so these, Martin, Mitchell, and Nanos, conclude, and I agree, that it refers with to pagan days, months, seasons, and years. Specifically those of the worship of Rome. And that certainly fits the context, doesn't it? However, there's another way that we know that he couldn't be referring to the Sabbath and to the festivals of the Lord. How could it be that Paul would be telling them that they're wrong for observing the festivals when in fact in other places he tells them to keep the feast? Like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. You see, here Paul tells us to keep the feast of unleavened bread, which is almost upon us. We should be preparing for that. For him to say to the Corinthians... Keep the feast, and then the opposite to the Galatians would make him at least mentally unstable. Right? 
God's festivals are his holy convocations. They can't be bad. Because Paul also tells us they're wonderful teachings of the Messiah. That's what he told the Colossians. He says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, the new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Messiah. Do you see the problem here? How can the festivals be bad for the Galatians when to the Colossians they're teachings of the Messiah and shadows of things to come? Not only that, Isaiah concludes his book, the book of Isaiah, with this. As the new heavens and earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, and their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. See, it's hard for me to imagine here, God would declare that all mankind would keep the new moons and the Sabbath in the same time of the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul would rebuke the Galatians for observing those things. Because if they did, they'd be putting themselves in the category of those who rebelled against God and ended up as dead bodies. It's impossible for me to imagine Paul rebuking the Galatians for observing the Sabbath when God's word says this in the book of Isaiah and the foreigners, we could as easily say, and the Galatians who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. God says that the Galatians who attach themselves to the Lord to serve him, to worship him, to keep his Sabbath, are secure, have a secure place in the house of the Lord. So if Paul is telling them that they're heirs and secure with God, why on earth would he tell them not to keep these things? See, it doesn't make sense, does it? One more. Zechariah 14 says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth don't go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people don't go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations that don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're going to keep the Sabbath, the new moon, and the feast in the kingdom. And since the Galatians he's writing to are already in the kingdom, this can hardly be Paul reprimanding them for doing the very thing that God asked them to do. No, he's telling them this because they're contemplating returning to idols and to emperor worship out of fear. And so he says, I fear that I have somehow wasted my efforts on you. See, part of the reason that I understand this book so much better than I did years ago is this is one of the pieces of the puzzle that it was missing. You know, some people who seemingly are led by the Spirit often fall back into some kind of tradition, 
Because it's such a powerful force within us. We have this need to be led. Scripture says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Right? And we all see that astray part and we repent for it. But we fail to see the sheep part. Right? We're sheeple. And sheeple... Sheeple want to be led. And so we listen to the voice of men and the voice of traditions. And Paul is saying to the Galatians and to us, follow the spirit of the living God, your heirs of the kingdom of heaven, heirs according to the promise. It's time to live as we are free to serve God. I thought this week, I said, I can't imagine for the life of me, I can't understand how the church could go through the last 2,000 years and not understand that Paul is not disparaging the law, nor the Sabbath, nor the festivals in the book of Galatians. It's unimaginable to me how you could read the whole Bible and come up with such an interpretation. I shouldn't say unimaginable because I know how it's done. It's done because we learn our old, worn-out, universal church teachings and Roman prejudices before we read the Bible. And then we read everything, we read the whole of the Word of God in the, through the lens of those traditions. You know, I've even spoken to pastors about the Sabbath and the festivals, and after I've corrected them, And debated with them on all the misunderstood passages of scripture that they give to support their rejection of the Sabbath. You know what they do? They just shrug and walk away unchanged. They don't care what the scripture says, even though their statement of faith reads, the word of God is our final authority. Because when push comes to shove, when it comes to the law and the Sabbath and the festivals, their final authority is the Roman Catholic Church. I even heard pastors say, well, Stan, I, I know the Sabbath is God's holy day, but if I tried to implement that in my church, I would lose my job or lose my congregation. They're going to lose their congregation anyway because people are starting to read the Bible for themselves. And it's sad to say, but in these regards, they are not followers of the Messiah. They are followers of the Emperor Constantine. He's the one who dictated Sunday worship. He's the one who replaced Passover with Easter. It was the church fathers of the second, third, and fourth centuries who led us away from the truths of God. And the fact is, we follow them to this day. You see, we have a similar problem here. The Galatians and the influencers are being led astray by the fathers of Judaism, and we're no different We've been led astray by the church fathers of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. The fathers of the Roman, Roman Catholicism. And like I said, the good news is people, just simple people like you and me, are reading their Bibles and saying, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> and then they're turning back to the word of God, to the Sabbath and the festivals of the Lord. Amen. Yeah.